Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for those of you that weren't here last week or might be visiting, we are continuing on our fall sermon series on Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And uh, it was really funny because last week I knew, because it was the first in my series, and I always do an introduction, and I take part of the scripture and talk about it, I knew last week was going to be a long sermon. So I threw a disclaimer out right away, just settle back, it's going to be a little longer than usual. And after the service, the guys who do the sound system came up to me and said, we had an over-under bed up there. You don't want to know what the over-under was. So we are continuing on Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, and we've arrived at chapter 2, and we're going to cover half of chapter 2 today and the other half next week. And, you know, just to kind of get in your mind, last week we kind of introduced Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and then we talked a little bit about Paul and his ministry, because this was probably his first and earliest letter. And so some of the things that were going on in the church, the formative years of the church, and the first writing of Paul as he was beginning and continuing in his his ministry, his missionary ministry. And then we talked about chapter 1 where there's greeting and there's, there's basic kind of, this is who I am, this is the ministry, this is who you are, and it's a blessing to be able to communicate with you. That's kind of chapter 1, and he introduces a couple themes in the process. When you get to chapter 2, it's really interesting how he begins. He begins with the phrase, you know. And I don't know about you, but sometimes in my speech, when I'm talking to somebody and I get real excitable, I'll say, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Do you do that? This is not kind of the same idea. Okay, when you do that, you're trying to get agreement. You're trying to get people on board. You're trying to make sure they're tracking with you. Here, he's saying... You know. In other words, the foundation of the gospel that I had laid, the foundation of the gospel that I had built on, you know. And I'm just here to remind you of that. You're already living it. And I want to encourage you to live it even more to extend the depth and the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in your heart and life. And allow the Holy Spirit to pervade you and transform you and to use you in the world. You know. That's the foundation that I laid. You know I've been teaching you. But now we're taking it further. And I want to encourage you in that. So chapter 2 really is about reminding them. He's reiterating what he said when he was with them in person. Chapter 3 does a little more informing about their situation. Chapter 4, he gets into a little more instruction. And chapter 5 is really about exhortation. And if you know the word exhortation, it's not a word that we commonly use in our language. It's really a word that talks about both encouraging and challenging all at the same time. And so that's kind of the, the first letter to the Thessalonians that we have. But we're in this reminding stage. And Paul is reminding them, and it's interesting where he begins with reminding them. 
He says, I came to you. And in coming to you, he's saying, you know where I've come from. That when he arrived in Thessalonica, he had been ill-treated in Philippi. He had a vision. He was called into Macedonia, into Europe. And he responded to the call, and he was preaching the gospel in Philippi, and he was having some success, and then all of a sudden this persecution rose up. And he was shamefully treated there. He was beaten, and he was thrown in prison. So then after he was allowed to leave, he was dismissed to the charges and allowed to leave, I think in his mind he said, okay, what makes the most sense to go to? And he spotted Thessalonica, Thessalonica being the the capital, it being a port city and also on the, the main road from Rome to the east via Ignatia. So that's where, where Paul decides to go next. It's 100 miles away. I think probably, at least in part, he's probably thinking, geez, I'm going to get as far away from here as possible, right? After the treatment that I got. So he goes to Thessalonica and he's there for a month and, he, and he's speaking in the synagogue, actually three weeks, and eventually they run him out of the synagogue again. Paul seems to do the same thing over and over again. So then after he does that, he goes to the Gentiles, and he's preaching to the Gentiles, and he has some success. Well, then the Jews and some of the Gentiles who don't like what he's saying attack him. So he's shamefully treated in Thessalonica after somewhere between a month and two months. He had time to preach the gospel. He had time to lay the foundation. But then he goes on to Berea. And once again, he finds success immediately in Berea when he's preaching the gospel. And then what happens? The word gets back to Thessalonica. Hey, Paul's being successful here. He doesn't like that. They don't like that. So the, Thess- the Thessalonians send a contingency of people to cause the, tr- the, the crowd in Berea to also persecute him and beat him and throw him out. So he's reminding them. He's saying, you remember my shameful treatment. You remember how I was willing to be persecuted. You remember how I worked and labored for the sake of the gospel. Even given the persecution. And I just want to remind you that that is the context of the gospel. That the gospel is confronting false teaching. The gospel is confronting the world. That's what the gospel does because it's truth. And people don't always want to live in God's truth. They want to oftentimes live in their own truth or the culture's truth. And when that happens, there's a reaction. And that's what Paul experienced. By the time Paul's actually writing the letter down the road, he's in Corinth. First Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 18. And he indicates that he is making tents, which is probably what he did in Thessalonica as well. He, he's working. But he writes from Corinth. And he says, I can't get there. Now, we don't know exactly why he couldn't get there. Back to Thessalonica. Maybe the people he's with saying, Paul, you're not going back there. Or maybe he had some kind of ill health. Or maybe the Spirit said, you need to do ministry here for now. We don't know exactly why he was prevented from going back to them. But he sends Timothy. Now, for those of you that weren't here last week, what we talked about is Timothy's small group, his small group Bible study, basically went to Thessalonica to work together for the sake of the gospel. 
And you've got Paul and Silas and Timothy, the understudy, and you've got Luke, the historian, who connected with Paul and his group and was traveling with him and gathering information about the early church, which is why when you look at Acts, for example, 15, the Council of Jerusalem, on through 18, when he's in Corinth, you get the same picture of what Paul was going through as you do in these letters, particularly this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And so I encourage you, by the way, if you want to look in your pew Bible, you can. It's page 1008, where he enters Philippi, and that's Acts 16, and then 17, he's in Thessalonica. But I encourage you to read that, to get familiar with it. But he sends Timothy in his stead. He said, I can't get there, but I'm going to send you Timothy. Timothy's familiar with the church. Maybe Timothy wasn't persecuted as much because he really wasn't speaking. He was an understudy. He could go in a little under the radar and still encourage the Thessalonians. While Timothy's there, he's finding out what's going on. So he probably gets the word back to Paul. Paul sends a letter. So that's what's going on. And Timothy, by the way, was not blind to this persecution. Paul's first missionary journey, which is before Acts chapter 15, he's in Lystra, in Derby. And Timothy observes the ministry of Paul. He's a young man. And Paul gets stoned by the people in that situation. And it's amazing because when the Spirit moves in your heart and your life, you're willing to say, I'm willing to be persecuted. I'm willing to misunderstand. Be misunderstood, by the way. I'm willing to go through the challenges and trials of the culture. That not everybody is going to understand the gospel because, as Jesus said in John chapter 8, they don't believe. If they don't believe, they're not going to accept the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word. If you do believe, you're willing to go through the trials and challenges that we see Paul going through, that we see Timothy going through, that we saw Jesus go through. Jesus himself said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. If the world persecutes me, it's going to persecute you. In other words, for people who don't want to receive the gospel and accept the word of God for their life, they're going to respond. And it's not going to be in a positive way. So Timothy, observing Paul from the very beginning, the first time he's introduced, of Paul being persecuted, he's not surprised by this. And so Timothy goes back as Paul's representative and basically makes sure that they're holding fast to the faith. The gospel of peace, the gospel of love, the gospel of joy. That even in the face of persecution, that's how Paul and Timothy talk about the gospel. Even in the face of the challenge of the culture, that's how Paul and Timothy think about the gospel. And both of them are willing to sacrifice themselves, to live self-sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. And that's the mindset that they go into Thessalonica and all the other cities that they visit. That we might face persecution. We might face trials and challenges. We're willing to do it because we love the Lord and we want to serve Him. And we love other people and we want them to know the truth. We don't want them to perish. We want them to know the love and the joy and the peace that we've experienced. And so they they go out in this challenge, in the midst of the challenge, and they're willing to be persecuted and misunderstood. You know, just for a moment, you have the gospel reading in front of you. Look at John chapter 8. Look at what Jesus faces with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
the leaders of the people. They call him a liar. They're in effect calling him satanic. This is Jesus we're talking about. And Jesus says to them, I don't lie. I'm not lying. I'm bringing you the truth. You can't receive the truth because you don't believe. Jesus faced the man who brought the gospel, the man who lived the gospel, the man who came full of love because God is love, faced persecution and was misunderstood and even called Satan himself. That's how strongly people would oppose the gospel, and that's what Paul and Timothy experienced. And that's what he's reminding them of. Them of. I came, and I was willing to work and labor and even suffer for the sake of the gospel and for your sake. That's the context. And so we get into this first section where he talks about what's being said about him, what he heard from Timothy, what he hears from other people. And they say that he is full of deceit, he has impure motives, and he operates with trickery. Interesting. Let's talk about deceit first. What that word means in its context is either Paul himself is deceived and is continuing the deception, or Paul deliberately and on purpose is deceiving people. One or the other. But deception is a part of what he's being accused of. In other words, this is not the truth. And maybe Paul bought into a lie, or maybe he's just bringing a lie. But he's got a hidden agenda. No one wants to be known as a person who deceives other people. No one. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody out there isn't willing to deceive. They just don't want to be known as a deceiver, right? I mean, when you're lying, you don't want to be said, well, you're a liar, and the person say, well, yeah, I'm a liar. But I still want you to buy this, right? Nobody does that. If you're trying to deceive someone, you don't want to be known as a deceiver. So that doesn't make sense. And number two, Paul himself wasn't deceived. I mean, who wants to be deceived? Do you want to be deceived? It's really interesting. I was talking to Peter Hunter before the service, uh, last service, the 8 o'clock service, and Peter and I got into a conversation, and he just started talking about this lawyer friend of his who has done law so often that when he has someone in his office that he's defending, he assumes they're lying. He assumes that. Now, I don't know who he's talking about, and the reason is, is because he's been told half-truths, partial-truths, and just out-and-out out lies throughout the work that he's done. And he said it often takes digging to get at the truth. Because people always want to spin it, their side, as the truth and the way it is. Now think about kids who are caught, right? Teenagers who are caught. How do they, how do they operate? Do most of them fess up right away? Did you? Usually we want to put a spin on it, right? A little deception. Just a little dodge. See, no one wants to be a deceiver. No one wants to be deceived. 
And Paul is saying, basically, do you really think that I would go through this persecution and this suffering and this struggle because I'm deceived? Because I want to deceive you? And it gets to the next idea that he's accused of. The accusation. Impure motives. Impure motives. That he has an agenda. That he's seeking his own financial gain. And how many people do that in our culture? We've got scam. Scams running constantly. People that are deceiving others in order to get financial gain because their motives are impure. It's all about them. What about people that are selling a product and they may not be totally honest about the product? Because they have financial gain in mind. What about men who compliment women because they have a hidden agenda? What about women who flirt with men because they have an agenda about their own pleasure? See, that's impure motives. And we have people in our culture constantly who have impure motives, either for financial gain or for pleasure, or possibly it might even be for prestige. They want to be liked. They want to be loved. They want to tell you what you want to hear so that you favor them in one way or another. So that they get ahead or they get pleasure. Something that benefits them. That's impure motives. The third is trickery. That Paul, when he went out and did miracles, or Jesus, especially when he went out and did miracles, sometimes the Pharisees and Sadducees would say, he's deceiving the people, or even he's casting out demons because he's the prince of demons. In other words, he's evil. Once again, it gets back to his motive. It gets back to he's deceiving people, which is what the Pharisees and Sadducees would say of Jesus. This is nothing new. It's what Jesus said would happen to those who follow him. And that's what they would accuse Paul of doing. You know, when you perceive that someone is saying something you don't buy into or you don't believe, you react in one of two ways. You either go away or you go on the attack, fight or flight. And what Paul would see in every city that he visits, including Thessalonica, is that some people would just walk away from him and other people would attack him. And that's exactly what happened here. You know, in between college and seminary, I had a couple of different positions. And one of those positions, some of you have heard me talk about. I'm just going to give a little, different, a little different part of the story here. I worked for an insurance company, and I was in sales. Okay, it wasn't fire insurance then. Okay, that would be now. But when I was working for the insurance company, I found out, first of all, that they hired two kinds of people. They hire people that want to make money. And they hire people that were altruistic. I tended to be the latter. I just wanted to make a living. But I cared about people and cared about doing a good job. And I wanted to serve them. And so I decided to go with this company that was a very good company. 
Toward the end of the year, that first year I was with him, we were doing goal setting, and I was working for a manager that understood where I was in my life and what I believed. I ended up going to a small group with a manager who didn't know me and other salespeople in the office who didn't know me. And one of the things we were talking about is priorities in your life and how you live. And we were talking about, you know, there were different categories. You know, family, friends, health, church, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I put God down first. And the guy commented on what I put. He said, well, that's really good. You know, it's really good to be involved in different organizations like a church or the Rotary Club or Kiwanis or something like that because you can network and sell people. This guy didn't know me. So I said to him, I said, no, you don't understand. God is the center of my life. I live for him. I try to imitate Jesus and I try to treat my marriage and my friends. And, you know, the job really is about just facilitating a life for me. And so it's kind of down on my list. And the, and the manager looked at me and he said, that's BS. Nobody lives like that. Now, I want you to read between the lines for a second. What he was saying is it's okay to be a part of a church if it furthers you financially. But don't take it seriously. Don't get committed to that. Because that's not where you want to be, to be a success in the world. That's what he was saying between the lines. And how many people in our world operate that way? See, this is not a game. This is a life. This is our faith. It's not about bluffing your way through a card game. That's part of the... The card game. It's not the way we are to be with our faith. It's not really what church is all about. That we're not here for deceit. That we're faking that we're a good church-going person. Or for impure motives. See, what Jesus and Paul and Timothy were calling people to was a real commitment. They were calling them to walk in the truth and live by truth. To live by the gospel. And so the next thing that Paul says in this context is, I don't live to please men. I'm not here to please mortals. I'm here to please the Lord. And the question is, who are you seeking to please with your life? Are you seeking to please the world? Are you seeking to please your peers? Are you seeking to please yourself? Remember the song, Went to a Garden Party? What's the bottom line in that song? You got to please yourself. Remember that? Do you remember who sang that song, who wrote that song? Oh, good. Ricky Nelson. Ricky Nelson was a childhood star. I mean, he was a cute little kid. Ozzy and Harriet kind of kid. And he grew up with such promise to his life. Do you know what ended up happening to him? His life was a mess. He was a womanizer. The guess is not hundreds, but thousands. 
He did drugs and alcohol. He died tragically in a plane crash. Someone who had such promise for their life. And the song that he wrote was about his life, if you understand where it actually came from. And he came to the conclusion, you can't please everyone, so you've got to please yourself. How many people live that way? Because really, many people in our culture are trying to please everybody else and do it the world's way. Or they're trying to please themselves. You know, what's interesting is that Hitler and his propagandists said that if you say something loud enough and long enough and even forcefully, it becomes truth. Let me say that again. If you say something loud enough and long enough and even forcefully, it becomes truth. And that's what the culture does with a lot of different positions, different beliefs, different lifestyles. And God calls us to live the gospel, the truth of his word, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And to be willing to suffer persecution and oppression and struggle. See, and most of us aren't willing to go there. And that's why I ask, who do you live to please? Who do you live to please? And you need to understand Paul's motive as this passage progresses of what he's saying and why he's saying and how he lived. Because he gets to the point and he draws a couple of analogies to make his point. He talks about a nursemaid. And then he talks about a father. He's talking about really in many ways the two sides of loving parents, of nurture, of nursing, of being available for an infant day and night. And he talks about a father in the context of working and laboring night and day. For a father who earns a living all day and then comes home and works around the house and is willing to be available to his family night and day. The two sides of God's love, which is why he gives us parents, two parents, to nurture us, to care for us, to work on our behalf and serve us, to provide for us and provide shelter and security. Paul is saying, I do what I do out of love. And again, in the context that he is writing this, he's writing it while he's in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13 comes to mind. And you need to know the beginning. We hear it read at weddings all the time. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, I can make a lot of noise. I can make a lot of noise with my words. I can make a lot of noise with my life and my action. But if I don't have love, it's nothing. See, what we have here are the two sides of God. We have this holy life that God calls us to. That God is holy. 
And we have this loving sign that God is love. And what Paul is saying, that's the challenge of our lives. That we live into that holiness and that love. Together. We hold them together. And that's what we show to the world. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That we live this holy life with pure motives. Not trying to deceive, but living with truth. And with love. A willingness to, to love God and to serve Him. And to love other people and to serve them. To please God, but not to please people for the sake of pleasing them. Loving them and serving them. Which is not the same thing. You know, I read one time, there was this guy by the name of Bernard Newman. Bernard Newman was visiting a, a, a missionary family. And they were poor. And they were in a poor country. And this guy observed this young girl every night sewing this dress. Every night. And finally, after a number of nights, he turned to the young girl and said, why do you sew on that dress night after night? I've asked a similar question to my wife, actually. She did one of these needlepoint kneelers, did you see? It took forever. It took like two years. She did the one with Jesus on the cross. Two years. I couldn't believe it. And I would look to her and say, don't you get tired of doing that? Isn't that tedious? She says, it's relaxing. Not my idea of relaxation. But she loved it. And she had a wonderful goal in mind. And this girl, when the missionary asked the question, said, this is my wedding dress. And I'm doing it for the one I love. That's what Paul's saying. I'm working for the sake of the gospel. Because I love God. I'm working for the sake of the gospel out of love for you. I'm willing to labor and work night and day for the sake of this gospel. I'm willing to face opposition and persecution and struggle and pain for the sake of the gospel. How many parents are not willing to lay down their lives for their children to serve them night and day? We're going to be doing a couple of baptisms in a little bit and I guarantee you these parents love their children even the big child that's going to be baptized I'm sure he's loved too Paul ends this section with I urge you I encourage you I plead with you Any means possible. Not coercing. Not forcing. Inviting. Inviting to this life that comes from the gospel. A life of holiness and a life of love. You know, every Sunday, every Sunday, we share in communion together. In the context of the communion service, we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy, thrice holy. 
that we recognize right off the bat as we move into this moment of holy communion with him and with each other, that God is holy. And then we remember Jesus' sacrifice with the words of the institution, that Jesus suffered on a cross and died in our place for our sin, so that we might have communion with God and communion with each other. Sacrificial love. So at the moment of communion, in the service we share in every Sunday, we remember God's holiness and we remember his love. And that's the life that he calls us to. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation not only for you, but for you to take to a world that may not want to hear it. For you to take to a world that may not embrace you, like you, love you. That's not why we offer the gospel. We offer the gospel because Jesus Christ has come into our life. And we know him as Savior and Lord. We know his sacrificial love. We know the joy and the peace that comes from the gospel. And we feel compelled, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to take the gospel to the world around us. Because God's love lives in us. And we want to take it to the world. It's an invitation. What do you do with that invitation? Please bow with me in prayer. Lord, the world doesn't always want to hear what we have to say. Just like people around Jesus, even religious leaders, even prestigious and successful people, did not want to hear what Jesus had to say. And yet he is our model. And Paul calls us to imitate him. Lord, in a world where we'll have a mixed reaction when we live the gospel, when we speak the gospel, when we reach out in love for others in the name of Jesus Christ, that we might be misunderstood, that we might even be oppressed or persecuted. Lord, give us the grace and the strength. Give us the desire to love you and to serve you and to love others and to serve them. Give us the grace in the midst of the opposition to continue to love and continue to serve. Lord, as we come to this time of baptism, Lord, when new beginnings are happening, I pray that some here would have a new beginning in their commitment to you. That some here would have a renewed commitment to live for you in the face of an, oppos an opposition from culture and challenges from others. Lord, we accept your invitation. Empower us with your spirit to live a holy life, a loving life, and to please you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.